Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show, January 25th. It's a Tuesday, uh, Taco Tuesday, depending on your culinary preferences. Uh, I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us here on Herd Tell, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world. Glad you're with us. Really appreciate it. Plenty to do on the show today. Uh, our friend Sarah Stook from elections-daily.com back with another excellent historical perspective piece on something you hear about in the news all the time. And you're going to hear about it a lot because it's an election year, presidential approval ratings. So... We're going to take some time with Sarah and we're going to deep dive it. We're going to go through every president since FDR and their approval ratings. And you're going to see some trends. You're going to learn some things and you're going to find out some things that might help keep approval ratings in perspective when they do mean something for elections, when they don't mean something for elections. A whole lot of little interesting historical tidbits in there, too. I love history. It'll be a fun time with our friend Sarah Stook. Also in the show, uh, we always end on a light note. Uh, this is an ultralight aircraft and a young lady who flew it all the way around the world, becoming the youngest to ever do so. Also, we're going to update you on a story we covered last Monday with our friend Joe Zemensky, who's also from elections-daily.com as it happens. Uh, we don't like to just drive by stories and move on. We like to update them. And uh, a popular elections website has put out an own piece similar to what we talked about with Joe last week. We'll recap that show you how we're staying ahead of the curve and turning down the noise of the news cycle here on Herd Tell. But first, um, part of turning down that noise is how we process and understand and intake the news cycle information we get. And instead of just covering stories, which by definition means we're reacting to the stories, I want to open the show up today with a new way that might help you in looking at those stories. You've probably seen uh, online or in the news media people who advocate 
or continue to push something that you just know isn't going to happen politically and or culturally. You can pick any example you want here. Uh, We could use many, but let's just keep it in the abstract for a minute. Just think back. Who on Facebook or on Twitter or a news anchor or a commentator or a radio host or whoever it may be continually push and say, we need X to happen, but you know, either because of political pressure or because of the makeup of the Senate or because of who's president or because of cultural pressures, it's just impossible for that thing to happen, but they keep pounding on it again and again and again anyway. Now, why is that? Why do folks do that? Well, they really believe in it. That's true. That's a big part of it. And if you're a host of a show, you're working towards that other thing we've been talking about a lot, audience capture. You got to keep them stoked up, got to keep them engaged, got to keep them outraged, got to keep them caring as much as you care because they don't listen if they don't care. So you can keep stoking the fire. But everyday normal people probably aren't doing that. They're not trying to do that on purpose, at least. So why do folks continue to hold on to things they know aren't going to happen? Well, there's an interesting way to look at this. Let's try it this way. Uh, have you? Can I introduce you to Kubler-Ross? Now, you may not know that name off the top of your head, but you should. Uh, she came up with the stages of grief. Now, she developed it to talk about death and dying and terminal illness, but it's been applied to just about everything. And because folks are making culture and politics darn near religious these days, when they don't get what they want, they grieve. They grieve openly. They grieve publicly. And on social media, they grieve loudly. And then they become aggrieved and they act that way. They want retribution. They want reckonings. They want things to be fixed. They want what they think is coming to them. And a lot of that comes from the way they grieved over not getting their way. You see how this kind of all goes together to the news cycle? Observe uh, the stages of grief. She had five of them. Some people have come along since and done seven or even nine. You choose your own flavor here, but we're going to stick to the original five. Um, denial, feeling numb is common after a disappointment or bereavement. Some people at first carry on as if nothing has happened. Even if we know in our heads that something has died or in the politics and culture realm, we know it ain't going to happen. It can be hard to believe that someone important is not coming back. It's also very common to feel the presence of that thing after it's left. Anger. Anger is a completely natural emotion. Anger is very natural when someone dies. Death can be seen cruel and unfair, and especially when you feel someone has died before their time or you had plans for a future together. That doesn't just apply to someone. It could apply to a policy or a politician or whatever you attach to. It's common to feel angry towards that thing or person that has gone away. And ourselves, we start having guilt because we did or didn't do something with it before it went away or we didn't get to experience it. Another stage is bargaining. Tell me you don't see this one on social media and in the commentariat. When we are in pain, it's sometimes hard to accept that there's nothing we can do about it. So we start to bargain. We want to believe that if we act a particular way, we will feel better. It's also common to cry out and try to make a deal with God or other religious beings to try to, well, if I do this, will you give me this? Uh, We find ourselves going over and over things that happened in the past and asking a lot of what if questions, wishing we could go back and change things. Did we not just watch this all year with some major pieces of legislation like, well, if we do this and we do that and we do this and if we can make this person stand on their head for 10 minutes in the corner and realize the error of their ways and that and that. By the way, folks, any plan that has more than one what if to make it work isn't a plan. It's a hope. But anyway, back bargaining, depression is another of the five stages of grief. Tell me you don't see this one online constantly. Sadness and longing at what we think 
of most often when we think about grief, this pain can be very intense and come in waves after many months or even years. Life can feel like it no longer holds meaning, which can be very scary. Oh, haven't we seen people after elections or after an electoral defeat or a policy defeat or a cultural defeat or a judicial defeat through the Supreme Court and they have depression and sadness and longing and what does it all mean? You see that all over social media. I think that one works. The fifth of the stages of grief is the one that is probably used the least, acceptance. Grief comes in waves and can feel like nothing will ever be right again, but gradually, most people find that the pain eases and it is possible to accept what has happened. We may never get over the death of someone precious, but we can learn to live again and we'll keep the memories of what we were lost close to us. Now, Cooler Ross points out, and as does this article, we're using this at a cruise.org.uk. You can find it all over the place, though. The five stages of grief and Kubler Ross in general. She made a point to make sure you understand that these are nonlinear. Fact, reading from the piece. Uh, people can experience these aspects of grief at different times as they do not happen in one particular order. You might not experience all of them, and you might find some feelings are quite different with different bereavements. You may find that you experience multiple ones of them at the same time or in sequence. There's no good way to grieve, but these stages of grief might come in handy if we look at this and try to keep a wider perspective on culture and politics. We just went through a year where a lot of people are legislatively frustrated. Do these stages of grief explain how they are conducting themselves online and in their commentary maybe better than their ideology or their politics does? I think it might. It might also give you a better way of communicating and trying to engage those folks. Because once they go to a stage of grief where they're having denial or anger, or bargaining, or depression, you're not going to be able to reason a policy point out of that position with them. You're just not going to be able to do it. But maybe if we find better ways to communicate with them, we can all find a better way to get to the acceptance stage, the least used stage. But the acceptance stage is where we can start making things like those really bad, dirty words like compromises, like bipartisanship, like give a little to get a little, but you can't do that kind of good faith bargaining without getting to the acceptance stage of what's going on, accepting the electoral reality of things, accepting what you can and cannot get done today, accepting that maybe you take a little bit of good that may not be the revolutionary good you want, but it's still a step forward instead of sitting on your high horse and getting nothing good at all and passing the buck to another day while you sit in your self-righteous grievement thinking that you've accomplished something. Just an idea. Maybe we should look at politics a little bit more this way, because this is how people act. And politics and culture is just a study in people. So next time when you see people acting irrationally online, instead of trying to apply politics and policy and ideology to them, maybe apply the five stages of grief to them. Because I'm betting they got four of them that you can dig into, and they're probably not handling that acceptance one very well, and maybe we can help them get there, or at least make sure that we're at the acceptance stage for the things that we can't change. That serenity prayer goes both ways, and we should all be praying it more often. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Uh, we always like to update stories that we've done. We don't ever want to just do 
uh, drive-by stuff and leave it hanging. Last Monday, we had on Joe Zemanski, our friend from Elections Daily, who joins us periodically, talking redistricting and gerrymandering. You have to talk both because one person's redistricting is another person's gerrymandering and so forth and so on. It just depends on your viewpoint. Well, uh, update, uh, 538, the well-known election website, being a week behind us, came to basically the same conclusions about these election committees that Joe Zemanski said. And at the end of the piece, uh, they conclude this way. Since gerrymandering became a household phrase over the past decade, reformers have touted redistricting commissions as the solution, reading from 538. As a result, new redistricting commissions of some kind were implemented in nine states ahead of last year, but the outcomes of the 2021-2022 redistricting process in commission states are a good reminder that commissions are no panacea. It matters how they are assembled and how much power they are given, something to keep in mind the next time a redistricting commission is proposed in your state. Uh, they have some maps and graphics here, and it falls along a lot of the same signs and a lot of the same things that Joe said. Um, states that struggled, Connecticut, Ohio, and Virginia were all places that were up on the struggle bus despite having commissions. Uh, once again, Heard Tell Show, we try to turn down the noise and give you good information. 538 is a lot bigger website than we are, but we were already on this story because we have good people like our friends at elections-daily.com. Follow them. Uh, Cunningham and Joe Zemanski and a whole bunch of other folks. They just went and did it, folks. Uh, we like supporting them, folks. Um, they just said, hey, we can do election coverage better than it's being done. Went out and started doing it. It's the kind of media we like to support. Uh, you can go back and find that episode. Also, remember, on both the podcast version and the YouTube page, the Good Talks Breakouts, those are just the interview portions. You can watch Joe Zemanski's full segment there or listen wherever you get your podcasts. More Hertel right after this. Uh, Hertel show, and she is back. I hope to make her a regular because she does such great work. She's got another piece out in Elections Daily, another one of these great historical perspective pieces. Uh, Sarah Stook, how are you, my friend? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Oh, you're always welcome. I love this stuff. Um, I love history. I love politics. You combine them and give us some perspective. Uh, this time you're writing in elections-daily.com, a history of presidential approval ratings. I think this is a great thing to have perspective on because in the news media, especially in America, they're always throwing approval ratings at us about everything, but they're never in context. So People don't really understand is like, well, what's it mean if it's 43 instead of 45 or, or minor changes? What got you onto presidential approval ratings is something to dig into historically. Well, I, I, didn't think, I think it, I'm sure it just mentioned about Joe Biden's approval on the news. And I thought, hmm, that'll be an interesting piece to write on. So I went for it. You did. One thing you started with FDR all the way through uh, modern day with President Biden, as we mentioned, uh, that's almost 80 years of history. I was kind of struck. There seem to be a lot of trends and a lot of similarities across very, very different presidencies here. Yeah, there's certainly a lot. You know, you've got presidents who are wildly popular today who didn't have the best approval ratings and you have vice versa. If you look at, you know, Clinton, sometimes he had quite low ratings, yet he's seen as one of the better modern presidents. And George W. Bush, he was you know, sort of quite the opposite. But after 9-11, he 
his approval ratings were highest we've seen out of any of the men who were ever polled upon. It's amazing because, too, is the approval ratings don't necessarily seem to align with their political fortunes either, do they? There seems to be sometimes a disconnect there. Well, yeah, you've got to look at it sort of in hindsight with FDR, with Clinton, with everybody. You know, you could have a president who was wildly popular at the time. I know it's a little bit early, but, you know, Warren G. Harding was extremely popular. But in hindsight, when we know about Teapot Dome and his other scandals, it makes him less impressive than, you know, if you're not there during the time, the president can be doing great, phenomenal things, but people at the time might not approve. You know, civil rights legislation, people at the time might not have approved, but today we realize how good a thing that was. Yeah, Sarah Stook joining us, uh, writing in Elections Daily. Uh, let's just start with FDR because uh, we had to sit through what I think is nonsense. They tried to compare uh, Biden's agenda to FDR, but one of the reasons I thought that was nonsense and just a bunch of noise was not only his approval rating, he had like two thirds majorities in Congress. He had total control of the United States government. Also, of course, World War II is a little bit different circumstances where the government took over large portions of the country. So we'll factor that in. His lowest approval rating was only like 48 percent. And that's an approval rating. Our current president would just be over the moon to even reach right at the moment. Exactly. You know, historians are a little bit more touchy on FDR, especially you know, conservative historians who don't like government overreach. But when you're in a Great Depression, when you've got a war killing millions of people, I think people are a little more receptive to the president. They can say, OK, we'll, we'll let it slide because it's unusual circumstances. If we'd been a peacetime president with the booming economy, you know, I think it would have been different. I think he was just incredibly lucky to come at a time where his big government agenda was seen as acceptable. Yeah. And of course, we have hindsight that some folks back then didn't have. Of course, the media was very different. So we know about things like Japanese internment. We know about some of the darker stuff that involved FDR. But his approval rating, pretty steady, uh, highest of 84 and the lowest of 48 percent. And that's in line with where historians rank him as whether you call him the best or not, certainly one of the most impactful presidencies of the modern era. Yeah, he's definitely probably historians usually rate him top three along with Washington and Lincoln. Uh, let's talk about let's just work backwards here. Let's talk about his uh, successor, uh, Harry S. Truman. Uh, Truman almost seems to get lost in the shuffle when we talk about presidencies, but a lot of important stuff happened uh, in the late 40s, early 50s during his reign. He was president from 45 to 53. Uh, a lot of people just jump straight to Ike and hit. And then, of course, JFK. A lot of important stuff happened under Truman. How is his approval ratings when he was actually present, though? How did the people see him? Well, initially, I think there was a lot of goodwill because, you know, he's coming off the back of FDR, who'd been president for as long as most Americans could remember. But when he started, you know, mishandling Korea and other aspects, when the economy still wasn't, you know, going the way it was, parallel to today, you know, like you said, he's kind of forgotten after, um, in favour of Ike. Back then, I think people probably would have been the same. He was a placeholder president. He won one election in his own stead. He only got in because FDR had the misfortune of dying, yeah. which is what every vice president wants, either the Senate to stop working or the president's heart. Uh, Truman did something, though, that in hindsight would be very, very modern. He 
he got into a media fight with a really popular figure. You know, today this would be on Twitter and network news, but back then it was newspapers and radio, of course. His firing of MacArthur was kind of one of the turning points of his presidency. MacArthur, of course, the World War II hero, wildly popular. Um, this would be a very modern problem. He picked a media fight and it hurt him in his approval ratings. Yeah, it still definitely feels like something that Trump would do. But yeah, with hindsight, you know, historians say it was a good idea, but that's why his approval rating was so low when he left office. He could have run for another term, but he decided it's not worth the risk. He wasn't going to win. So he didn't put up a fight. He didn't bother. But when you are the president versus a war hero, war heroes tend to come out on top because they're nonpartisan and they win wars. What more can you really go for with that? Yeah. Now, to be fair to Truman, uh, he fired him because MacArthur wanted to nuke China. So let's just you know, yeah. let's be fair and yeah. factor that in. In hindsight, course, thinking, yeah, yeah, probably not the best idea in the world. Sure. And and there there is some folks that probably in hindsight wish he would have done that. But let's not go down <laughs> that rabbit hole. Uh, talking to Sarah Stuck. Uh, let's just go to Ike then. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, hero of World War Two often thought very fondly as a very moderate president, a stabilizing president. But there was a lot of stuff that happened historically, but none of it seemed to really affect his approval rating one way or the other. He stayed immensely popular all the way through his presidency and to the end of his life. He was a historian sort of remember him, whether fondly or not, as a do-nothing president, which isn't necessarily true. He did things, but his eight years were very more relaxed. The economy was booming. I mean, yeah, Vietnam was starting to happen, but it wouldn't really properly kick off until Kennedy. So he was lucky. He took advantage of the post-war boom and he ran with it. You know, being a hero of World War II, that will take you to places. That hence why both parties caused him to run for president after the war, and he eventually chose the Republicans. He could have chosen the Democrats and still been as successful. And I think presidents back then they didn't. I think people didn't mind if they were a bit more hands off. Whereas nowadays, I think it's the opposite. If a president is too hands off, then people don't like it. Something for the modern age that people don't know about Ike is uh, the polio crisis uh, reached its apex under his presidency. They actually, something for our modern time, talking about vaccines and stuff, they actually screwed up the polio vaccine. They put the live virus in. People actually died. Children died because of this. And he had to go on the radio and this fledgling thing called TV and calm the country down. When you're talking about approval ratings, those things really matter in big historical moments like that, something that's now almost completely forgotten. But can you imagine today if we had put out a coronavirus virus with a live virus in it, would the president be able to just calm the country down like that? Well, Eisenhower was lucky that he didn't have a lot of television or social media, which is, I think, that factors in approval ratings a lot. Like you said about FDR, things were different. People didn't know about his, you know, his disability, for example. All the murky stuff was hidden away. Now it's what's and all, which I think definitely impacts how people see presidents because there's so much exposure in a way that we probably didn't have back then. Yeah, this is true. Talking to Sarah Stuck. Um, and that brings us to probably the first modern media president. Uh, JFK, of course, famously uh, first television debate. Uh, darling of the media, uh, obviously photogenic, obviously very charismatic. Uh, how did his approval ratings go? We know he was assassinated, and that's going to skew it um, in history somewhat. But when he was actually president, how was his approval ratings as kind of the first modern media-driven presidency? He had some really high approval ratings, one of the highest averages, because, like I said, he was young, he was charismatic, he represented a new generation, 
Right, to make me perspective, Eisenhower was born in 1890, JFK was born in 1917, big age gap. Jackie Kennedy born in 1929, I think Mamie Eisenhower was 1894 and 96, one or two, so it's still a big age gap. And he had some really major things happen. Bay of Pigs, which failed. We have the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I've read a book about recently, and you don't realise how close it came to the nuclear war. Like, we, it, it was lucky, very lucky. And Kennedy was high throughout most of it, which isn't well known because he had a lot of ailments and he was, you know, high as a kite during it, which is a bit worrying. But, you know, he was young, charismatic, and then he had a lot of tragedies. His um, son, Patrick, died three days after birth in 1963. And I thought, oh, you know, poor President, poor Mrs. Kennedy having to lose that. He had a lot of reason for people to have sympathy for him. And also the fact, they had the fact that he was a very poorly bloke. I mean, understand a war injury, you can understand what all the illnesses he had, like Addison's disease. There's a reason why the Nixon campaign tried to get hold of his records because that would have screwed his presidential ca- uh, candidacy completely. But he is well regarded by historians today, something I don't believe should be the case. I'm a little more iffy on him, but it, it reflects perfectly his high ratings versus what historians think of him. Yeah, and people don't realize how bad his health was. In fact, the assassination video, the reason he falls so awkwardly in the car and and it looks like he's propped up is because he is. He's wearing that heavy back brace. Uh, He had days he could not walk as president. That was all hidden from the media. So those things all go into approval ratings. Interesting historical stuff with Sarah Stook. We're going to continue going through the presidency. Her excellent article in elections-daily.com. More on her tale with Sarah Stook right after this. And we're back at Hertel. We're continuing with Sarah Stook uh, talking about presidential approval ratings and historical content. All right. A guy that I really find fascinating, uh, Trump before Trump, even though he was a Democrat and Republican, I mean, in mannerisms and the way he conducted himself personally. Uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, fiery figure, charismatic figure, big personality and big, big swings in his approval ratings during his presidency, weren't there? Huge swings. You know, he came off the back of JFK, um, which everybody felt sympathy for because LBJ always said that he wanted to be president, but not in the circumstances he came to be, unless you believe he was involved in the assassination, which quite a few people, including Bobby Kennedy, did. He started off very popular. He used the goodwill of JFK's assassination to push the Civil Rights Act, which I believe, had that not happened, would have pushed it back. It would have still happened, but it would have been a couple of years at the very least. Ending his presidency is one of most unpopular in the memory of all Americans. He could have run for another term, and he initially planned to, but I never expected him to until he decided and announced that he wasn't going to run. And people did not expect that, even though he was extremely popular. It was just thought an incumbent could run. It was fine. So we went from a hero in the domestic front, you know, expanding welfare, state Medicare, Medicaid, civil rights, to his foreign policy, which was an absolute shambles because we all regard Vietnam today as a huge failure. And he played a big part in pushing it forward which I think also probably hastened the end of his life. He did die only a few years after he left the presidency at quite a youngish age. And I think if it hadn't been for all that, and if he'd been a bit healthier, he would have lived longer. And I think those approvals 
they weighed on his mind, which you wouldn't expect from such a boisterous figure. But I think deep down, he really hated the facts that he was disliked. Yeah, but he was out of his element as president because, remember, he was a master of the Senate. He was very, very powerful, probably the most powerful politician in the country in the Senate. Um, so when he elevated to the presidency, even though I'm sure he wanted it ambition wise, uh, it really wasn't going to his strong suits as a person. And it really, really showed in his approval rating in the end of his presidency, not going well and being one of the few presidents to not run for reelection when he could have. Exactly. You know, like you said, he was a master of politics. He could get bills through like there was no tomorrow. He called it the Johnson treatment because he was very tall. He was six four. He would stand over other politicians who would most likely be shorter than him, glaring him. He knew how to work the Senate. Vice presidency probably took a lot of convincing because nobody wants to be vice president. It's pretty irrelevant unless, you know, the president's heartbeat stops, which luckily for LBJ and not for J- uh, LBJ and unluckily for JFK happened. But I agree, he would have, I think, had he not been vice president or president, he would have been remembered a lot more fondly, but unfortunately, he had sort of the mispleasure, which is a very strange thing to say about someone becoming president. Yeah. And of course, his follow up predecessor, uh, talking to Sarah Stook about her excellent article about presidential approval ratings. I love getting this broad perspective on something we hear about almost every day. I think this is healthy. Uh, you got to talk about Nixon, though. Uh, Nixon is, of course, our only president to resign uh something in your neck of the woods in the uk that's actually the way most of your leaders and prime ministers exit office you may be getting ready to do it again depending on how an inquiry goes next week like we talked about uh uh, with our friend porsche uh, earlier last week but uh this is very uncommon in the american system so to have a president and lbj who passed on running and then you have nixon who resigns in disgrace over watergate um, obviously that would affect his approval ratings greatly. And it was kind of a shock to the presidential system as far as how the office was perceived in American history at that time. Exactly. You know, he was never, people say he was Trump before Trump, but he was a very dour man. He was a family man in a way. I don't think maybe Trump really is. He was very bored. He didn't, he wasn't a showman like Trump was. And I think actually you could compare Trump more to Andrew Jackson, but that's another matter entirely. Yeah. Trump was not a he Quaker was... like Nixon, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he was a fascinating figure. You know, I think had it not been for Watergate and maybe a few other things, he probably would have been remembered as a great man. He was very good on civil rights. I'm not personally, he was very racist like LBJ was. I'm not going to pretend he was this paragon of virtue, but he was pretty good on Native American rights. He did a lot for the environment, relations with China improved immeasurably, but his hubris got the better of him. He still won that election in 1972, 49 out of 50 states, which is something we will never see again. Absolutely no way could you imagine, say, California voting Republican. Wouldn't happen, nada. But his his approval rating was still low when he left, but it wasn't as low as one would expect. You'd expect it to be a lot lower than it was, yet people still had high regard for him. It's just that he had to you know, jump before he was pushed because he knew time was running out for him. And he was smart enough to know, you know, if I stay on, it will be humiliation for me, for my family. Um, of course, the guy that had to clean that mess up was Gerald Ford, uh, not remembered as a great president, but respected as uh, a great man individually, a, a man of high character, probably the, exactly the man the country needed in the moment. 
and that reflects in his approval ratings, which were quite high, even though, uh, again, he only had the one term. He didn't get elected. Uh, he was defeated in his bid to win the White House on his own. But even in losing again, again, it doesn't match up politically. His approval rating was actually pretty good, all things considered, even though politically he's seen as a failure as a president. He actually the 1976 election, him versus Carter, was actually a lot closer than it should have been. It should have been a landslide for Carter, but it was it was pretty even election. It was just things weren't great economically, and Ford had maybe messed up by pardoning Nixon. But like you said, he was popular. You know, when Spiro Agnew was about to resign, all the Republican leaders said, the only man we will accept as vice president is Gerald Ford, because everybody likes him. He's a good bloke, which obviously worked out well. But Joe Ford's unfortunate that his wife had better approval ratings than him. Betty Ford was noticed saying she'd kill to have her approval ratings given to her husband. But like I said, is loved as a man, but a good man doesn't necessarily make a good president, as we've seen with Jimmy Carter and many others. Yeah, and Carter is another one of those. Um, he gets dinged for the economic collapse of the late 70s, even though a lot of that was on things that Nixon had done with things like price control and then the petroleum. Then he had world events that kind of overtook him and he wasn't up to the moment, just to be fair to him. But he's another one. Uh, approval ratings, probably not as bad as people think because of the way they talk about him. He's respected for all his humanitarian work since he left office. So we have another one of these good man, but bad president kind of situations. Exactly. You know, like you said, I mean, you it's no matter if the president before you did it, you're going to get blamed for the current situation. And that's true with every single president. So it's not unique to Carter. I think he meant well. But when you look at the Iranian hostage crisis, for example, and the failure to bring them back, especially when there was a secret mission to do it and several military men were killed, that that messes it up. You know, people don't like seeing Americans in distress and military men killed, as we will maybe talk about a little bit with Biden in Afghanistan. And foreign policy is where a president can uh, sink or swim. LBJ is widely reviled for his foreign policy, whereas it was the savour of George H.W. Bush. And in domestic policy, he he brought a couple of new um, cabinet uh, positions, education and energy being two. But when you've got a petrol crisis, when people are queuing all day long, then, you know, you're going to get blamed. Yeah, that'll happen. We're talking to Sarah Stokes. She has an excellent piece in elections-daily.com. I'm going to take one more quick break and then finish up. We're in the modern era. Reagan, both Bushes, uh, Clinton, and of course, Trump and Biden. We'll finish up with her right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Going a little long because this uh, presidential approval, a historical perspective, I think it's important because we hear about it all the time. What is it actually going to mean five years, 10 years from now? Uh this is kind of the big one when you talk about popular presidents. Ronald Reagan, uh, beloved, adored, borderline worshipped on the right. Folks on the left don't see him quite that well. But obviously, one of the more popular presidents won uh, handily both elections, both basically landslides. And his approval ratings uh, look exactly like you would think for a historic figure like Ronald Reagan, don't they? They're not as high as one would expect, but you've also got to and he's a popular president and he is rated quite highly by historians. But, you know, people, there are still people who you know don't like him, which is true for any president. But you get a lot of very nasty comments online about him in the way that you, maybe Margaret Thatcher would get the same kind of things in the UK. Um, yeah, he, he was 
pretty much Teflon Ron, though. He was extremely charismatic, you know, helps by his actor training. He was likeable. He was absolutely devoted to his wife. But even around Contra, he sort of, it's known that he probably maybe knew about it. He didn't approve of it kind of in Nixon Watergate, but it was passed off to people, other people because Reagan was a hands-off kind of guy. There is a good chance he maybe didn't know about it. It was Oliver North and all the other people that could be blamed. But yeah, he won 49 out of 50 states and he actually very only lost um, Minnesota by 3,000 votes. So he could have got a 50-50 without DC, which, you know, again, would not happen today. But very impressive and approval reasons can lie but at the time that it happened you know he was clearly popular was it down to Mondale being a sort of bad candidate not necessarily I don't think he was a bad candidate at all but Reagan was just very good he was Teflon run which I think definitely worked in his favour I still think there are Democrats today that like him you know Reagan Democrats obviously the one really left-wing people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren won't, but I still think there's that respect for him because how can you get 14 out of 50 states without a few Democrats liking you? Yeah. Uh, a figure I find fascinating talking to Sarah Stuck, George H.W. Bush, a one-term president, which is somewhat uh, unusual at the time. Trump has managed to do that now, but it was uh, kind of surprising when Clinton kind of came out of nowhere and beat him. But he had a war. You talk over and over again in this piece that uh, having a war that's successful is really good for your presidential approval rating. He had one of those. But here you go again, had pretty high approval ratings at one point uh, at the time, record approval ratings at one time, but only became a one term president. And his presidency is kind of seen uh, shaky, if not uh, as incomplete, I would say. Uh, George H.W. Bush and his approval ratings. How's it look historically? Yeah, you look at the Gulf War, and if there can be such thing as a good war, that was what it was, you know. It was a very clear case of one sovereign nation attacking another sovereign nation of countries. I mean, Saudi Arabia and Israel working close together happened quickly, got the job done, bish, bash, bash, Kuwait's um, Georgia National Heron Kuwait. So that's, you know, a good war. That's popular. That's good. Then he contracting with his domestic policy, really my lips, no new taxes, which made him very popular on the right, which is something you don't really want when that is your base. And the economy, you know, he he was a well-off guy. He was probably a nice guy. He just wasn't really in touch with the common people. I've seen it when he was looking at his watch during the famous debate with um, Ross Perot and Bill Clinton, and he couldn't explain how the national deficit had affected him. He was another one where he sort of ridden on Reagan's coattails a bit, even though the two weren't close at all. And, you know, Bill Clinton, yeah, he came out of nowhere, but I think a lot of Democrats would have beaten him in 1992, sadly or gladly, depending on your political position. Talking to Sarah Stook, I actually took uh, my two younger children and we actually went through the line at his state funeral in the rotunda. Mm. And I, I will tell you the cross section of America. I, I went to that because I think because he was a World War II veteran, war hero, I think he may be one of the last presidents that is universally respected. Um, oh, and, and we already talked about uh, Clinton. So let's skip ahead a little bit to Barack Obama and Donald Trump, though, because I think you have to take them together. Because of what I just said, you know, you had those universe, you know, even if a president lost, you know, Nixon recovered his reputation to a large degree. Uh, we tend to like to like our presidents. 
the era of Barack Obama and then Donald Trump with their approval ratings, you can really start to see the partisan divide and the new media, uh, such as social media, take hold in how approval ratings work, don't you? I think you know, Barack Obama and Donald Trump could cure cancer and people still not like them. They're both polarizing for you know very different reasons. Obama is a strange one because in the UK, he's really well respected. People in the UK really like him. And around the world, he's really liked because, you know, he was a positive, he's seen as a positive ambassador for America. He was very polite, had a loving family. He wasn't as divisive as Bush and Trump would later be. But, you know, back home, you know, he didn't always do well. You know, he did what weren't like bin, the Bin Laden. Bin Laden getting finally assassinated was another great foreign policy hit for him. But when you've got Iraq and Afghanistan dragging the way that they were and, you know, Arab Spring, the draining of Libya, it's kind of a, it's a funny one. You know, Benghazi, though, I suppose that's usually laid more at Hillary Clinton's door. I think he's an odd one because I think people like him and historians usually rate him highly, which I think it's too early to really rate him properly. I think you need maybe another decade out of his office. But yeah, there's polarisation there. But I find him a fascinating case of a mix of adoration and almost revulsion. In the same way Trump is, you know, Trump never hit the 50% mark for approval ratings. And I'm not really surprised. He's a divisive figure. Even though personally, I believe he did a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. But with his personality, like I said, he could have cured cancer and people still wouldn't like him. So I think that's when approval ratings start to get a bit tricky because can you really judge it when people are just saying, oh, it's Trump, he can't do anything right? Sarah Stook joining us talking presidential approval ratings. That gets us up to the modern era because we may or may not be done with Donald Trump. We'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Uh, President Biden started out decently high. He was up uh, you know, around the 60s when he first came into office. Uh, he's flirted with the 30s now. What is the proper way when we see day after day, every couple of months, we get these approval ratings? They're all usually in uh, concert with the political moment. What's the proper historical context now that we went through all these presidents? When we see that graphic on the news, what's the proper perspective to keep that in, do you think, as we go through the Biden administration? Well, you know, there's some things that are always going to be classed as horrific. You know, the Afghanistan withdrawal, there's no good way of looking at it beyond American soldiers getting out of Afghanistan with all the chaos that's happened. Um, I did write an article for another publication because it's a year today since he was inaugurated, so I wrote an article about the one year. But there are some things in perspective. You know, in 10 years, we might praise Biden for how well he handled the COVID crisis. There are things that set in the moment, like Watergate, is good or is bad, whatever category you look at. But as time goes by, there are some things that, change i mean reputations change george bush for example george bush jr very disliked as a president even though his approval ratings after 9 11 were astronomical but apart from the most a lot of people calling him a war criminal people like him he's well respected and i think a president's post-presidency can kind of have an impact especially if you're polling historians later on i still think there's a subconscious bias about post-presidency some maybe not you know Ronald Reagan was adult with eyes Alzheimer's so he couldn't have the wonderful post-presidency in his ambition but George Bush Bill Clinton Jimmy Carter who've done amazing things afterwards have you know redeemed themselves in the public eye 
Sarah Stuck, this is fantastic. I love getting historical perspective on something that we deal with every day and we never stop to get the perspective. So thank you. This article is in elections-daily.com, our friends over there that we use frequently. Uh, let people know what else you got going on. We know you write in the UK Mallard. Uh, let them know your social media where they can follow you and what you have going on, my friend. Uh, my social media is Sarah underscore Stuke. Um, I've just written an article about the one year anniversary of Joe Biden's inauguration because that is today. Um, I usually do a lot of historical threads. I'm going to do one about inaugurations later. Um, you'll find me talking a lot about Jackie Kennedy because I love her. Um, I'm hoping to do some more American presidential stuff maybe in the coming weeks. I'm not entirely sure what exactly I'm going to do, but hopefully it'll be of interest to everybody. Yep. And when you do let us know, we'll have you on and discuss it because we love talking history and perspective and you do a, a really good job with it. Sarah Stook, great to have you back. Great insight. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you very much. All right. Looking forward to doing it again soon, man. Ah, I heard tell show. As you know, we always like to try to end on a little bit of a lighter or happier note. This is a cool story. You know, I'm an av geek. I wanted to be a pilot when I was younger. Got to fly planes a little bit. I love aviation. So this is a fun story. Teenage pilot Zara Rutherford completes solo round the world record. She becomes the youngest person to ever do it at 19 years of age. From the BBC, Zara Rutherford landed in some town that I cannot pronounce in Belgium two months later than planned as a result of adverse weather during the trip. She spent a month stuck in Nome, Alaska, and 41 days in Russia on her return to Belgium. The former pupil of St. Swiston School, Winchester, was greeted by her family, journalists, and well-wishers. She was accompanied in her landing by four planes from the Belgian Red Devils aerobatic display team. After landing, she wrapped herself in the British and Belgian flags and told reporters, it's just crazy. I haven't quite processed this yet. She told a press conference she was so glad she took the challenge of flying 32,000 miles. The hardest part was flying over Siberia, she said. It's the extreme cold, and if the engine was to stall, I'd be hours away from rescue. I'm not sure I would have survived. I'm looking forward to telling people about my experiences, encouraging people to try to do something crazy with your lives. If you have an opportunity, go for it. The circumnavigation included more than 60 stops across five continents and began on 18 August. The British-Belgian aviator, whose parents are both pilots, said she hoped to inspire other girls to get into STEM occupations. The challenge was made possible by sponsors, including her former school and Shark, the Slovakian manufacturer of her Shark ultralight aircraft. Her former school was among the first to congratulate Zara, tweeting it was super proud of her achievement. Previously, the youngest woman to fly solo around the world was American Shasta Waits, who was 30 at the time of her challenge in 2017. The youngest male record holder was 18 at the beginning. The youngest woman to complete the challenge, Miss Rutherford, is the first woman to circumnavigate the world in a micro light and the first Belgium to circumnavigate the world solo by air. It was expected to take three months, but numerous weather delays had a knock-on effect and caused her Russian visa to expire as the Siberian winter approached. When she arrived in Nome, only three of the 39 flights had gone to plan, and she had to wait while her passport was relayed by air to the Russian consulate in Houston. But even with her new visa, she was further three weeks before she could cross the Bering Strait. During a video update posted on Instagram, she said, it is negative 18 Celsius and my hands are literally so cold. I've been here for almost a month. I've been keeping busy. I've been applying to universities and keeping the plane ready 
to go. The weather hasn't been great every time. Either Russia has been looking bad or Nome has been looking bad. Once in Siberia, where the temperatures were as low as negative 35 Celsius on the ground and 20 Celsius in the air. A A mechanic blocked up some of the air intakes on our aircraft to keep the engines warm in the extreme cold. But despite all the challenges, Miss Rutherford completed her task despite the setbacks and spending Christmas and New Year's away from her family. The teenager appeared happy and smiling in her Instagram updates. Took her 155 days to circumnavigate the earth. You really need to go look at the pictures, bbc.com. Uh, also, uh, various other outlets. This is not a, this isn't even a full blown airplane. This is a micro life aircraft. Um, it is extremely small. Uh, this is quite an accomplishment and good on here. Very cool stuff. Congratulations to Zara Rutherford. Comes from a family of pilots, by the way, if you're wondering where she got her leg up, gave her a little bit of a head start. That'll do it for her tell. Uh, we sure appreciate you. Make sure you reach out to the show. Let us know what you're thinking, what you're feeling. You got questions, comments, epistles, want to share them. Keep your bearing. Be nice. We'd love to have them. Might even share them on the show. Make them a segment. You never know. Uh, send them in. Hertelshow at gmail.com. Hertelshow at the Twitter. You can reach us either which way. Uh, my Twitter handle for For the Fire, it's on the graphics below at the beginning of each segment. Our guests, we always put their Twitter handles on there. Make sure you're following and supporting them. We love having them on. Make sure you give them your support. So that'll do it for Hertel today. Wherever you are, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll see you again tomorrow for more Hertel. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.